0: So, uh, some of you listening might be wondering why we called our podcast Live from Agilum. Some of you might also be wondering what Agilum means. And we kind of like that. We like having a name that uh, requires some Googling or Wikipediaing. Can you use that as a verb? Wikipedia-ing? Um, so, Agilum was basically the cave um, where David and his... Mighty men hung out, hiding from Saul, who was hunting David. So uh, David is a fugitive of sorts, and uh, he's in a cave, you know, basically taking refuge until he can regroup and go back and claim the throne that uh, you know God has promised. So. Uh, we don't want to draw connections or parallels too strong to the story because we're not fugitives and no one's trying to kill us. <laughs> and we're not trying to claim a throne. And we're not trying to claim any thrones. <laughs> if anything, we're fugitives from fundamentalism, but that's like maybe a different podcast. And uh, basically, the reason I liked the name and kind of pitched it to the group was this idea of um, being limited. Our perception is limited, things are dark. We're in a place where maybe we we haven't figured things out, or maybe we thought we had it figured out at one point, and now we just kind of feel like we're in a cave, and I like the metaphor a lot. And uh, my Christian life in the last five years especially has felt like it's been in a cave. Um, And I I think maybe revelation is when I step out of the cave for a moment and, and see light in an area, but then I always feel like I end up back in the dark spot trying to figure out what the heck is going on. So the idea of uh, Moravia Project calling their podcast this, again, is not to um, infer that there's someone after us or we have some upper hand philosophically or something like that. It's this idea that we don't have it figured out. Uh, Many of us are often in a dark place in this group and are trying to figure out what we think, what we believe. Um, And the, the thing about a cave is it's not... The most comfortable place to be And that's something I've been thinking about a lot uh, This group has been really uncomfortable for us in, in a lot of ways I mean there's camaraderie here We get to bounce our thoughts off each other We have really, you know, uh, interesting conversations But it's uncomfortable to be in a place Where you're always reminded that you're finite You don't have the answers And you're seeing through a glass darkly So, um, yeah, I guess that would be like a Maybe two to three minute Summary of of uh, why we were thinking it would be cool to have a podcast called Live from Adulum because it kind of puts us at a place where we're not presenting ourselves as professionals, we're really amateurs, and we're people kind of freaking out in a cave. Do you, do you
1: Actually, think- I just wish I was a bat. Oh yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, you're definitely crazy sometimes. <laughs> I don't I'll have to ask Lizzie if you hang upside down. Huh. <laughs> <laughs>
2: You think maybe we've peeped our eyes just outside of of, uh, of Plato's cave, only to fall into that of Agelum? Mm, Whoa! No. Are they connected caves? They are connected, because we were the blind men sitting in a cave with the other blind men who said, "Look at the pictures on the wall. This is the way things are." And then we decided we just had to go around and look over the the edge and try and see outside, and pissed off everybody that was in the cave we came from. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably true in many ways. <laughs>
0: My Thomas question Nagle is Nagel asked
1: the question, what is it like to be a bat? Is there something that it is to be a bat? Is there something that is that is that it is like to be a bat, you know? And I think that I think that uh, that question is uh obviously he, he took that down a different road, but I think that it, being able to relate to people uh, in different uh, in different worldviews or in different situations, uh, they find themselves in, in different spaces in life. I think that figuring out or trying to figure out what it's like to be them uh, kind of it, it kind of equalizes everybody. You know, huh. it, it it gives you a certain type of empathy, and it takes you on a certain kind of a road. You know, trying to understand people and loving people uh, takes you on a certain kind of a road. Hmm. And I think that we all have we've all just been interested in, in people in In people's stories in people's concerns people's doubts um uh, you know the high and low points of life uh over the last ten years to me has become you know become something that I'm constantly thinking about other people's li- in other people's lives uh so you know as we started this group started in in like kind of maybe a uh a, a purely uh apologetic journey, and I think that it evolved. And I think the more that we paid attention to the nuances of of the of the arguments, the the more empathy grew uh, for people with different ideas. Not not to say that it's re- that things are relative, but just to say that a lot of a lot of issues that people uh, people struggle with are are nuanced. They're not as black and white as we, as we want them to be. Mm. And, um, with respect to God and faith, uh, I mean, my understanding has always been that God knows every detail of people's struggle, that he knows our frame, you know, that we're dust. And he pities us in, in that state, you know, as being finite and, and incredibly limited and subject to our, our surroundings, you know? And so, So apologetics evolved for us, uh, maybe slowly, but we did it as a group, you know, and, um, we read a lot and, uh, we thought a lot and we talked a lot and we, we, I think we tempered our own ideas, um, from a bunch of different angles, you know, and we questioned our, our, uh, certain allegiances maybe to, you know, political parties or, you know, to certain levels of, of, um, yeah, you, know, t- uh, you know, certain team mentalities, you know, within the greater evangelical framework. Um, so, uh, it brought us to a place where we're just kind of like constantly in discussion yeah, and, and always, always talking about things and always with a hope to the future and a hope to, you know, the way God views, uh, the way God is viewing this situation that we're all in and what he would have for us or what, 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 what he would lead us into or lead us away from. Um, and what kind of wisdom we would need to, uh, we would need to apply to sat you know, to, to, to survive our situations. So, yeah, I, I like that picture of the cave and agilem. And and like just the, the nature of the situation that David was in with, you know, with many people uh, from the kingdom that were just in be, in rough shape, you know. And there, there seemed to be like a mind towards God in the cave. David's mind was towards God. And David also, you know, took certain liberties and his conscience, you know, his conscience affected him. So he was not without, you know, he was not without correction in the cave, you know.
0: No, and it's not a deification of David or his story because David was a wild man he was, yeah, and really to me, the metaphor like you're talking about the endeavor of being an apologist, and I think it would it would be really healthy for apologists to spend a little bit more time in the cave, yeah, I think so, because if 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 you don't you you start to look at arguments as machines that can be disassembled. But you have to remember that arguments are connected to people's experiences, which are connected to, you know, how they were raised, the things that have happened to them. And I think that spending time in the cave and kind of freaking out and not knowing who God is or if he exists or, you know, our left hand from our right hand, like you were saying, it gives us a certain empathy towards people and their experiences and not empathy like, oh, I really pity you because I went through that too and, like, you'll get on the other side, bro. Like, it's more of like a, yes, that's what it's like to live in a cave. (laughs) and I get I get you in that sense like I get just face to face with your limitations at all times and not knowing like I was telling Andrew yesterday that like I feel like the moments of clarity I have is like <laughs> I'm out of the cave for like a minute and I have like an epiphany and then I go back in and I'm freaking out because I can't figure out who God is or what's going on with this you know area of doctrine or philosophy like and I think there's just something really healthy like you were saying the discussions are in a place of recognizing limitation. Yeah. And I think that's what that's what agile means to me that you know these discussions around these mics I mean really we're in your basement which is kind of like a cave. Um you know, not as damp. There's but.
1: literally stalactites forming on the <laughs> on the block wall behind you.
0: Yeah. No, it's definitely a you know.
1: There's watermarks dripping <laughs> down. There is.
0: I, I do think that, though, that this group started maybe in a place where we thought we were outside the cave. Oh, yeah. And we could help people that had questions. Like, I don't think it was like a purely prideful venture. I think we were saying, how can we help people who have questions like we have? How can we help them find clarity? But eventually, we found ourselves asking the same questions, if not crazier questions. Because once you really get into the argument, you lose yourself in a way.
1: I wasn't so interested in the typological connection between Agilum and us, but the more I think about it, like the dominance, Saul's dominance, or like what is dominant, what what are we coming up and against, you know? Like what is chasing us, or what are we coming up and against? It's manifold. As Christians, obviously, it's manifold. You're up and against your own nature, or you're up and against, you know, uh what people think about you or the history of the church. There's a million things you're up and against, but I think that maybe we, we realize that, uh, that apologetics should not be seen as, uh, a place of, uh, um, uh, exercising from dominance or from, you know, from higher, some kind of higher, higher plane. You know what I mean? Like, I think that the more we, the more we did apologetics, the more human we felt, not, not the more, you know, not the more uh, spiritually informed with regards to those issues.
2: Do you think we're, we've been like easing off of the adversarial uh, framing? Yeah. Like um, there's an understanding and I don't know how much, I I think there's a point. There's a, there's a criticism floating around in in the world right now that uh, a lot of the conservative evangelical ideology that's been formed since like the reagan you know religious right movement a lot of that sphere of thought has been based on an adversarial and and victim like mentality like oh the world is out to get us yeah you know and i don't know what you guys thoughts are on that but I, I just uh i don't find it helpful
3: to think that way i i remember when we first started not understanding what sam pink meant when he would talk with us about this us versus them yes that <laughs> yes. he ran into Sam yeah. was a in, prophet <laughs> yeah, yeah he would run into it in church groups and at college university And with social groups. And I remember not understanding it until I left, like, um, just having circles of Christian friends and actually having friends who had different political views. And then when we actually went to campuses to talk to students with what we thought was an open mind for ourselves, at least in my opinion, like it was really more of a stretching for me because I realized that the most hurtful thing that 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 right created was the us versus them. Yeah. And that the left as well uses it. It's a construct sure. of of argument, but that like where I find myself is not even questioning us or them as much as questioning why there has to be an us versus them. Like we were talking the other night like about, you know, the two parts of something versus the three parts of something. And really like most arguments are that you think of yourself a certain way and then you place yourself in a camp or a tribe or a community a certain way. And you argue either for or against it towards the rest of the different groups and opinions. But really it's not even, that's not, that's not even true us versus them. That's more of like you in a, in a group and then, your version of the group versus someone else's version of the group, they don't all, they don't all line up, right? And the us versus them becomes the thing that divides us instead of actually creating unity of thought for people getting together trying to figure their philosophy, their worldview, yeah, their faith out.
0: That's why I like Paul's answer when people started to try to worship him. He said like, uh, "We're men of like passions." Huh. He kind of just like. The lines that were drawn, he kind of erased them. Like, we're the same level, guys. Like, you might have seen something mystical that makes your, your mind wonder. But really, like, I'm just like you. And I, I feel like that's what MP has done for a lot of us. It's made us a lot more human. Yeah. You know? Like, oh, you know, we we bleed when we get cut. And we sometimes question our own worldview to an extent where we don't know if any of it's real. And and people need to see we're, we're people of like passions.
4: All right, mortals, we have uh, used the word we at least 40 times already. I think it's time we go around the room and actually say who we are. Oh, introduce ourselves? Why not? All right. (laughs) I don't want to start, though. Well, I'm (laughs) definitely going first.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm Dave. I'm David Laflame. I hail from Massachusetts originally, and I've been living in Baltimore for a while. Mm, 14 years.
2: Wow. I'm you know, starting
1: long? to love Baltimore. Wow. Yeah. That's
2: amazing. Yeah. And I love you guys. Huh.
1: Is that yeah. Stockholm
2: Central or I don't know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> maybe. No, yeah. I don't know. I I don't know. I really am genuinely starting to like appreciate where I live and you know the fact, you know, the fact that I'm here. I've I've really embraced it. I hmm. I haven't called this home until maybe a year or so ago, you know. Hmm. And I, I think that you know, this group has been, uh, you know, part of making it home has been what the type of friendships that we've all developed, you know, over the years and, and in honestly moving from a Saul kind of a mentality into the cave together, you know, is, (laughs) has been wild because I really needed help. I mean, I've had like, you know, I've had like transitions, a few different, like major transitions in my life. And one of them was from you know, a, a very arrogant young Christian uh, that knew the Bible really well to someone that was actually listening or actually caring or looking at what caring was as, you know, maybe something for my future, you know, like uh, something that might happen to me. I might care someday. <laughs> and, and like that... It
0: might happen upon me.
1: <laughs> it might happen upon me. And I, you know, I feel like a lot of us have gone... Not, I mean, we are all... You know at certain times, I'm sure incredibly hundred percent selfish, but like it's just been cool to think about you know all the issues that I thought I had sewn up you know with you guys and uh and it's been home, you know you guys are home, you know uh in so many ways, so yeah, mm-hmm. that's me
2: wow um, I'm Andrew Young, hi from, Andrew from. <laughs> from uh Westminster, Maryland. <laughs> and uh I like hanging with you guys. I like talking about the uh the shifts in our ideas and uh I'm a big fan of classical philosophy, I guess. I, yeah, I like
0: that's a cool thing to write in a singles ad.
2: I like Marcus Aurelius.
0: Long and, walks on the beach and like Marcus <laughs> Aurelius. And, um, <laughs>
2: how you should sleep on a plank bed there you
0: go andrew is also uh, not mentioning that he is quite a craftsman he, An he welds awesome. and builds things with his hands and
3: I matchmaker. Yeah. no
0: I, th- this is not me advertising for him <laughs> I, I didn't
3: even think of that i didn't
0: see kyle your and... mind is in the gutter bro <laughs> <laughs> he well, said single I, I, it's... no did i say single oh. <laughs> i didn't say single yeah, i did not say single yeah. I said he builds things with his hands.
3: Before that. Just continue. You have a card of gold.
0: Anyways, I was saying that Andrew was one of the first people I met who would go into the forest and, like, cut down tr- a tree and, like, build something out of it. I just didn't know anyone in their 20s who could do I, that. I have
2: done that. Yeah.
1: <laughs> While we're introing Andrew for Andrew, I so appreciate that he believes in aliens. Do I? I <laughs> I was just playing. <laughs> As in like
3: Andrew almost doesn't question it. <laughs> do little green I men. Do?
1: I mean, I didn't know anyone really believed in little green men, but I'm so uh, thankful that I know you.
2: Yeah, man. Well you always have to, you know challenge the dominant dialect there's, no, <laughs> there's no real value in consensus I think we all have a absolute ability to reason from first principles you know in, in all matters <laughs> that's that's how it should be it should <laughs> I'm so lying.
0: I guess you can edit out <laughs> yeah, the okay. detour I, I was actually just trying to say Andrew's really handy Anyway, <laughs> I'll wait till you stop laughing because I know you have
2: to edit it I'm a professional dilettante I'm a jack-of-all-trades, a master of zero.
1: All of this is going on there. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, this no. is gold.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I, I'm Matt Vieter. Um, I kind of wanted to start at, like, an AA meeting and say... And I used to be intellectually dishonest and have the group just say, hi, Matt. Hi, Matt. Because <laughs> <Hi, Matt. laughs> <laughs> I did. Um, and I still, you know, obviously I still am to some extent. Uh, we don't always see our blind spots. That's why they're called blind spots. But um, just realizing over the years how tight I held on to certain areas that really our hand should be much looser around and um, – Actually, Dave and I were talking before the podcast about being addicted to certainty, an article that was entitled Addicted to Certainty. And I think I was at a certain point. Um, and I'm I'm uh, coming off that addiction. And uh, yeah, I, I love uh, Edie's cookie dough ice cream and my wife. And uh, I have a question for you. <laughs> Wait, but I, I was still bioing.
4: <laughs> Is it true you're related to McGregor?
0: That's not true. <laughs> it is not true. <laughs> he, I I do feel a camaraderie with crazy Irish people because I come from a crazy Irish family, but I am not related to that Here specific crazy Irishman.
4: Okay, I guess it's my turn. I'm David Post. It's your uh, idea, Dave. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Crap. <laughs> um, uh, what? What to know about. Uh, I kind of gr- I grew up overseas uh, in a Central Asian country that I have really thoroughly enjoyed, uh, like a different worldview uh, over there. Uh, kind of growing up, uh, seeing two cultures blending, uh, my family culture and then the culture there, and uh, it it probably started me on the journey that we're all here on, which is. Uh, seeing sincere people uh, in another religion that are also thoroughly seeking God. Uh, Kyrgyzstan was not a uh, not a radical Muslim country in any way it was a very nominal uh, Muslim country and so the people were just extremely kind and just reverent of God and at some point you just that that affected you where you realize like these guys are, are really looking for God and as soon as you would talk about that, you could have a really serious conversation that really made it hard to stay adversarial <laughs> with people, you know, like you realize like, wow, they're they're into this, they're into the pursuit of God. And we were on this journey together. And um, I have to admit also that I, you know, grew up as a pastor's kid and really got to a point where I was quite obnoxiously sure of myself and uh being I was homeschooled and uh and then in a certain environment that really I thought I knew everything and then when I went off to college for a little bit uh found that none of it was mine uh that it was all given to me but I had never owned it and so there came a point in time where one of my classmates who I was really trying to tell them about the Lord and had been had this program almost of like, God, just give me a good chance to talk to him. And he knew I was a believer. And then it's, I, I uh, for the life of me, I can't remember exactly what traumatic incident happened in his life, but he came to me in tears and asked like a question and I intellectually knew the answer I'd been given it before. And I kind of knew how to answer that. And then I did not know how to answer it from my heart. Like I, it wasn't mine to give. And uh, that kind of sent me in this, this quest for for knowing truth personally, you know. And I think that's kind of what's been so, I've appreciated this journey together so much be- because of that, because uh, it's, we're, we're as a group not seeing ourselves as part of a, on some high ground that we are hmm. ha- having to fight for the high ground and we got it and like we're just trying to. Get people to where we are, Um, but we are discoursing. Just you know, we're we're discussing as mortals to mortals, like we're talking about, and how how amazing that is. So, uh, other than that, I guess I I have a tremendous appreciation for people who can fly fish effectively.
0: Well, that's that's good to know. That's important stuff. (laughs) Yeah.
4: How do you follow that one up, Kyle? Not with fly fishing.
3: <laughs> <laughs> um so my name is Kyle.
0: Hi, Kyle. Hi, Kyle.
3: I was addicted to intellectual dishonesty for many years. Um, I grew up in Massachusetts and then was I've been we were just talking about this at my parents' house today. We've been in Maryland since nineteen ninety seven. So this year, my parents have been there for 20 years. Wow. Um, I've spent the last two years in Pennsylvania. And uh, it's fun because I was thinking about like where this group started. I remember a fateful Wednesday or Sunday evening church service ending and us being in a cafe talking because Matt had this idea that we should start talking in a group Hmm. and that there was one or two pastors who just kind of like, you know, kind of half gave their blessing slash...
0: Very reluctantly gave their blessing. (laughs) Yeah.
3: I mean, there had been like three meetings leading up to the meeting and uh, I just remember that like and going, why is this such an annoying thing? Or, Or not annoying like to them, but annoying in that the process had to be you know, so long. And then I it realized... like we
0: were jumping through hoops, maybe?
3: Well, yeah, because I had just jumped through a bunch of hoops right prior to that for other reasons. And it was just interesting to be so naive, even just those six years ago. And now I feel like I'm even more, like, not nuanced. The more I learn about, you know, philosophy, the more I learn about and think about how to actually structure how to think and how to talk about things you know it's been a good discipline but it's it's been a tough one for me um because i like don't want to take all the time in the world to do it either you know it's not easy well you're
0: like, a marketing guru you want to make things fast for people
3: you know fast and i also like have this you know idea in heart that like okay as soon as i understand one part of it let's go explain that to as many people as possible right you want to share the wealth, yeah. <laughs> yeah but that's... that doesn't always work if you don't have all the pieces together. But that's... we
1: have been professionals at reading a single line from a book <laughs> and thinking we understand the book. That's so true. That's well, unfortunately true. We we are we are climbing our way out of that hole. We have been doing a lot of reading in the last couple of years.
3: Yeah, it's yeah. true. Because I remember we used to <laughs> go to events barely ready to talk about titles we had sent to be marketed four weeks in advance. Right. And then showing up like trying to compare notes like you're talking, right? This is your event, right? Like, Oh no, this is all you. And this guy said 200 years ago.
0: And then like someone asked one follow up question. You're like, shoot, I didn't read the book. (laughs) Man, I should go back and figure out what he was saying. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's one thing
1: like anybody to me, anybody uh, who's willing to think, uh, is a, it should be allowed in the in a discussion?
2: Yeah.
1: Anybody who eh, who like uh, who takes the time to think about something without reading anything really, you should be able to talk about an issue if you're really thinking about it. But when you know, I mean, we were definitely posers in many in many areas of, the, of theology. Consciously,
0: you think we we meant not to consciously. Pose? I just I you just mean, don't think we, we did were doing hard accident. work. Yeah. We
1: weren't doing the hard work of. I, I mean, we are I mean...
3: The we beginning... built ourselves one way, but realistically we were another. Well, we... Well, Not on purpose, though, I either. would
0: say we also didn't really know academia. I don't think
1: we knew how much we needed to read. That's what I mean. Yeah. Like,
0: our our idea of putting time in was like a half hour or an hour tops. But when you dive into, you know, graduate-level discussion... Or doctorate-level discussion or post-doctorate-level discussion. You can't just be like, all right, I read that for half hour, I'm good. you got to, like, spend a season of your existence you <laughs> diving guys, into an argument.
2: Have you guys heard of the Dunning-Kruger effect? No, but I'm interested to hear about it now. Well, the Dunning-Kruger <laughs> effect is where you're so incompetent in something that you can't even understand how bad at it you are. <laughs> <laughs> like, it's, it's... According to Wikipedia it's a sense of illusory superiority that you have when you have so little exposure to something you're like, "Oh yeah, that's, you know, that's easy. I can do that." <laughs> you know, and the only way it's cured is by jumping in. Yeah. Experiencing some formal exposure to the subject and realizing like, "I'm a little bit of an idiot."
4: Yeah.
0: Well, because also you get this idea when you first start diving into apologetics that the more people, I quote, when I talk, the smarter I am. So if I, like, quote Nietzsche once or if I, like, quote Bertrand Russell, like, then, man, I'm like, I'm well read, like I'm studied. But quoting somebody without knowing where they're coming from, it doesn't make you more of an intellectual. It actually makes you less of an intellectual. Yeah,
1: it's almost like you you, in in actually jumping in, you find the depths that you still need to go. Or yeah. you kind of find
0: out why that person was being mischaracterized for what they were saying. Right. Yeah. Like, like you understand. A sound like it's not Exactly. There's like, like a
1: high school like with Nietzsche. There's like a, there's like a tattoo on the arm, Nietzsche, like a, <laughs> quote tattoo. Yeah. Somebody like you know God is dead or there's a, there's a myriad of them. But and then the, like the next level is like your high school Nietzsche. Like the highlights of Nietzsche that like interest high school minds.
0: Like ESPN Sports Center Nietzsche. <laughs> right, right.
1: And then there's like and then there's like you know, there's undergrad Nietzsche and then, you know, and then you're like then you're really starting to understand how crazy the dude really was. When you really read him and you really understand where he's coming from, like you, you get you get the type of psychological pain that he was in. And you get what the cause of his and how and how like, and how nuanced his philosophy was, you get the causes of it, like the myriad of causes of his philosophy. And then you then you understand like, wow, he stands in a few different places here. And then you understand how there's different, like different ideas on him, different, different interpretations of him. So like the the more you the more you get into it like in anything like this that truism that the more you get into it the less you actually know right you know
0: and it it should be said for our listeners that Dave is the only one of us that I know of that has read multiple Nietzsche books cover to cover instead of just diving in for the occasional quote or paragraph right am, am I correct in that
1: uh yeah I mean and and just because you read it doesn't mean you understand it
0: I, I it, knew you would take the humble road. I'm just saying that. When you're talking about Nietzsche, you've actually you've actually read his work.
1: Yeah, a couple, a few books. I mean, yeah. I like anything. I think that the high ground assumed high ground, like the truth of the matter is, you're actually in defilade. Like you're actually down low. You actually are looking. You're looking at what you want to know. When you think you know something, you're looking. You're essentially you have a view to what you what you want to attain, and you haven't admitted that to yourself and and the more you look at your actual place or what you actually know the more you realize that you're you're at the actually at the bottom of the hill and and right. you and you need to find out what the bottom is like with regards to you know any any field of knowledge really
0: but it's terrifying it's terrifying to yeah. to look into something and realize that not just that you're inept but you literally don't know how to frame reality like that that like looking into something as basic as um the freedom of the will i remember the first time i studied the freedom of the will i was like this is easy you know i can pick up this pencil off the desk i'm free yeah duh and then i like started reading all the theories you know about you know neuroscience and brain chemistry and how much is the brain telling you to do something and how much are you telling the brain to do something how much is the wiring how much are you rewiring Mm. and i was like Dude, I thought that was like the clearest thing possible. Yeah. <laughs> so when you when you you know pull the carpet out and you you lack the surety you once had in the most basic tenets of existence and th- never mind theology and religion, it's terrifying. So you can you can see why it's easier to take a nap and say you've got the high ground. Yeah, it's easier, and that's why we're saying we're addicted to certainty.
1: And people are addicted to different high grounds too. Like with regards to the freedom of the will, like the that that book by Jonathan Edwards, the freedom of the will happens to be a mountain, a high ground for many people, especially in the Reformed tradition, Mm -hmm. and they happen to think that they have everything wrapped up, you know, in that concept. I mean, Edwards was a genius, but when you read it, you realize that. You realize that he's just as much in the bottom of this hill as anyone else, yeah. and he's he's well spoken, but the end of this thing is he's proposing something very ugly, you know, and really he's he's claiming a certain type of surety on an issue that, well, I hope I hope he's not right about, you know, <laughs> yeah, and, I hope
0: so too, and
1: <laughs> and uh, and I mean, any any I mean, all the theologians do it. I mean, it's part of what doing theology brings you to is uh you know a propositional view that things are this way and, and you, you do it you fly in the face of the fact that there are myriad there are manifold alternate and you know contradictory views on a you know a n- number of subjects but that you're going to write could say about in
0: its purest form the the pursuit of theology if you separate the fallen aspect and the ego could be a really righteous journey to try to figure out who God is, right? Yeah, like yeah. at the, oh, at the yeah, start. But it, it just can get sour real fast.
2: Is it possible that we don't actually know what real theology even is? Yeah. Because the version of theology that we were exposed to is almost like calling a monster truck rally the Indy 500. Like, like so low, so base... So explicitly anti intellectual, like those people want to go to college and learn Greek and Hebrew while we don't need that. Like, people say that.
3: I've been thinking a lot about that in respect to, um, I learned about this guy named Michael (laughs) Polanyi. I forget how to say his last name. Um, but Polanyi, Polanyi, he wrote The Tacit Dimension,
1: yeah, and Personal Knowledge. Yeah, Great he's, book.
3: he says personal knowledge, tacit knowledge, and it's been racking my brain a lot because he says, like, tacit knowledge, which is just a fancy word for saying, like, you know how to do something because you know. You've experienced it, and the transfer of that knowledge is done by showing somebody how to actually do it. Like, he references, like, actually teaching somebody how to use hardware or a tool like even just something as basic as hitting a nail with a hammer you can't write out a manual for how to do it until the person actually starts trying to hit the hammer hammer on the nail then do they actually gain the knowledge right whereas there is also like textbook knowledge where you just you can read through it and now become familiar with that version of personal knowledge. And I, I kind of want to toss it back to you with what you're saying. But for me, the, the greatest uh, new self-awareness is that, like, I've been exposed to too much, like, explicit knowledge. Like, here's the textbook idea at the base, but then never being actually shown the tacit, like, use of language to then show the actual correct thinking pattern being walked out
2: and that's sort of what i'm thinking like the the ideas that we've been taught as theology have been for preaching for big loud public persuasive you know impressive spectacle you know we had a a lot of that Mm. and you know hiles was like an influence on our early church and, and boy back in the day you know the more screaming that was done, the more great it was. But there have actually been people for hundreds of years who have been sitting in universities, hitting the books, studying these things, working out the hard problems. And there is a volume of literature that we have just touched the surface of. And and there's a volume of understanding that, that we can like attempt to become familiar with, attempt to engage in dialogue with, but like, the idea hits me when we say theology is this or that
0: yeah
2: other other than you know the basic dictionary understanding of of what it is under some some idea of man's place in the cosmos and and mm-hmm. understanding of god and what that means a dialectic about god theologos right yeah mm-hmm. but um
1: it's impo- isn't it important to uh, to just consider uh the f- foundational access that a given human being has to metaphysics like that that if you take if you select you know 20 people from random places on the planet in at random times in history you have you you have like a foundational access right yeah you see it in scripture you see like you know you uh, I've seen it called a uh, general revelation sure. like and then like we believe that like reason is involved in that obviously because Absolutely. the way that you the way that your you know your visual cortex aligns with your understanding of the world logically there's like a there's a synergy of like a few different things going on yeah. that are essentially have to be God's, you know, uh, the tools that God gives a person to understand general revelation, right? It's just the basic, obviously, your senses, and then your your uh, your um, cognitive faculties, and uh, all all these things together, you have access. Uh, What kind of access does the base the you know does the given person have? Well, a good bit, you know. And we've talked about like aside from scripture which is like uh is like another is another uh variable in the mix like you have you have like essentially the history of religion is a form of dialectic where like people posit things about metaphysics and then there's a negation of that pause of the positing going on hegelian on this well i mean it's i think that it's i think it's real i think that there's there is an evolution of metaphysics, sure. of the way people see metaphysics. And then within the Christian sphere, once you have Scripture, so like the religious the religious history is obviously like n- not just ideas battling, but people groups battling and negation of ideas along with the negation of people groups along with warring, right? Right. Certain religions probably died. You know, tons of them probably died because their people died you know and the battling ideas about religion and the battles of religion is it's it, that's its own dialectic right it just is and then i think that within the christian sphere since the very beginning you have scripture and then you have the access that a given man has to scripture right which is which is you know before the pope locked it up anyways like it is your rational mind and your understanding of language and we believe the spirit of god aiding well i believe the spirit of god aiding your understanding yeah. right and then within that access you have uh you have like inherent problems you cuz cuz the human mind likes to glorify its own understanding right so like an honest view to scripture is very difficult and and nearly impossible for a given human to have and and uh so you see like Within the Christian sphere, a dialectic of understanding the arguments about what the Bible means from the beginning of the church, the Christianity was essentially groups of arguments among people that loved each other and believed that Christ was the answer, right. you know, and, and the Bible, the formation of the Bible or, or the selection, the canon, and, and also the doctrines alongside that selection, the the formation of church dogma was was a dialectic was was a proposition and negation and synthesis a proposition negation ne- negation synthesis over and over again and on the other side of that we recognize that even today like we have an access to scripture that that needs negation like if i think i know something i know nothing as i ought to know right right and and as soon as i negate my own concepts start over like this like this book uh your god is too small. I mean there's things in the book that I you know I disagree with but but the book uh just highlights the fact that like many 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 people believe in the same judeo-christian god but have kind of crazy stigmas attached to him. And maybe they're formed through their understanding of scripture, like maybe a, an a, we, I believe an error an error in their understanding of scripture or it could just be their human mind poisoning the well you know and and their issues their psychological you know their their formative issues you know their their relationship with their father or the culture that they're growing growing up in conditions their scriptural understanding and their and thus their understanding of god and it might be unconscious or subconscious they might not be theologians these people with their gods too small but like all these people the book paints pictures of like all the different ideas about the judeo-christian god the policeman the old man in the sky there's a bunch of them right and and really at the end of the day like i'm subject i'm subject to my my access the access i've been given and the good in good in good ways my access and then the situation of my human nature's like kind of uh fatal flaws with regards to you know, uh, intellectual indiscretions and, and unwarranted sureties and uh and also like some people it's, it's as bad as manipulating people with scripture and downright fraud fraud that happens in, in cults, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, that's sorry for the, sorry for the rant, but yeah, you should be, uh,
2: (laughs) (laughs) I'm just messing, but I
1: don't, I mean, I don't really know what I'm talking about, you know, like I'm just saying, this is just the way that I've seen it as of late or whatnot.
2: So maybe it's, it's worth, uh, I mean we've been talking about acknowledging your own
3: ignorance, right? And um as part of how you observe the things around you. Yeah. Yeah. Like taking into account the
2: limited nature of your frame. And uh maybe I was a little harsh. I mean, Matt has more right to speak about theology formally than any of us cuz he's actually studying theology. But
0: <laughs> I, but I still feel, you know, just as inept as the next guy. I mean, the the deeper you dive into the arguments the more you realize number one that i only knew about a fraction of the arguments that existed and then number two (laughs) i don't know if i can align myself with anyone's argument i don't know if i want to create a brand new one and then even if (laughs) i do my argument might be you know just as unnecessary to someone else as their argument is to me like it's a yeah, I, I mean, I, I find... Actually, Dave Post and I were on the porch the other night at my mother-in-law's house, and he said something that I've been thinking about for like three days, and it was, um, it can be dangerous when someone gives you an answer before you ask a question. Yeah. And I, th- I think in theology that mm-hmm. that has been the case with me. Uh, and I don't think anyone meant anything, uh, you know, maliciously, like, I'm going to do this kid's thinking for him. It's just you're... You're you're handed the certain cardinal doctrines, and then also the secondary and tertiary doctrines of you know the environment that you yeah. are raised in theologically. And I, what I'm realizing is that you know just how profound what Dave said is is like, you know, it it can really mess with someone's epistemology to be handed answers before they even explore the questions for themselves. Yeah, and I think with theology, that's something I'm learning is that. Uh, I'm just starting to ask the questions I already had the answers for before I asked them. And it's a trippy experience to explore something you thought you had nailed down that you hadn't really thought through totally. And in in a graduate level of theology, you know, even more so I end up after a semester going, I don't even know what I believe about those things I knew what I believed about before the semester started. <laughs> yeah. And I I mean I guess this group has has uh helped me keep my boots on the ground in that way especially that I wouldn't um I wouldn't think I have the market on theology or truth but the that,
1: corner of the you didn't corner the market
0: Yeah, corner of the market is that a better way to say that?
1: I don't know. How do you say that? You don't I, have I don't co- have the don't, corner you don't have a corner on I don't market. have a corner on the market I haven't yet. cornered the market. You certainly don't have the market, Matt. <laughs>
0: I- I don't have a corner. Do you have a corner of the market? I don't know if I even have a crevice of the market, Dave. Is
2: the market in your corner?
0: I don't know. I don't even know what the market is. Does the market have oranges today? I'm not sure. You got to ask the man.
3: I'd like to.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> I'd like to hear Dave Post talk more about that quote that you that you're reminiscing about.
0: Uh, the danger of being fed answers before the questions are asked.
4: Uh, I think it's something we've just been chewing on uh, about the value of the journey um, and how important. And each one of us kind of has found that afterwards, like, holy smokes, like this is so important to, to actually having something like, um, I mean, we've been talking about it basically all night, even like the tacit knowledge and, and just like experiencing it for yourself, like that hunger for, for God to connect and to like, to touch us. Uh, I just I find that a lot of times, uh, especially uh, probably more so now as these uh, as millennials and all, all the discussion continues, it, it's uh, this anti-establishment mentality that is actually still in all of us, um, that we are kind of tired of being told <laughs> what is right. And um, I think what we have to offer is mostly connected, not with what we're taught, but what we have experienced, like that affects us at a much deeper level. Hmm. And that's the core. And, uh, and that's what I really enjoy. Like I, I, for instance, identity is one thing I've been thinking about a lot, like how identity can't be taught. I mean, j- there's a lot of things, but some of the most core things that our generation really lacks and really is looking for, such as identity. It seems like a lot of those things just need a personal touch Hmm. and we can kind of be pointed in the right direction, but you got to ask the questions, you know, and and that and uh, that's something I've been thinking about, too, a bit It's just how special it is that when you're on the journey to find the answer, uh, but how much we're just, I don't know, as human beings, we just really suck at getting the answers before yeah. asking well, it's the hard questions. work. <laughs> it's
0: hard work. I mean, it's an analogy I often revisit is um, this idea of having materials purchased for you on a job site for the house you're building versus going to Home Depot and buying every box of nails and you know buying every tool that you need to build the house. And I think with a second-generation uh, Christian or Muslim or Buddhist or second generation agnostic, I don't know if you can pass on those doubts, but the idea of being raised in a system of thought and it not being your own and kind of exploring the demolition of what you were raised in, the structure you were raised in, you know, if I've purchased those materials and built the rooms with my blood, sweat and tears, then it means a lot more to me and I, and I have a, a better understanding of where I'm living, you know, as far as my world view. But if it was handed to me, you know, and it was, you know, not only were the materials on the site paid for, but somebody else built the house and I'm just comfortable on the couch in it. It's like at a certain point, you know, there comes a point where you go, you know, I didn't work for any of this and I don't even really know what I think about this whole structure. You know, and then maybe the floor starts to sag, you know, and and then maybe, you know, there's a leak in the pipes and eventually you go, I didn't build this and I don't know if I want to live here. And I think for a second generation, Mm -hmm. like... Dave often says, like, not just, like, second-generation Christian, which is what, you know, we are, but a second generation from any system of thinking and religion is going to go, you know, I didn't build this structure. I wonder what, you know, I wonder what it all means, and maybe I want to build it myself. So for me, Moravia Project has been a place where I can start swinging the hammer and start hanging the sheetrock and getting, pulling permits so I can start building. I mean, these illustrations are way cooler for you because you're a carpenter, but, you know, just this idea of actually erecting a structure like that, I, that I'm building it, it, it's it's hard work dude and it's terrifying but it's it's necessary if we're going to be at home in something and raise our families in it
1: my, my pastor asked, uh, asked this question in Bible college and it's never left me and I think it was I think it was uh, right there with me as I started uh, really taking a good look at things and it was if you were born in India Would you be a Hindu? And I, that question haunts me. That question haunts me. It's the greatest question I think I've ever been asked in Bible college. It's a great question. Where are your roots and how did you form them? And did you form them as a result of, you know, the given culture that you happened to be born into, right? Right. Like you happen to number one, you happen to exist. You ha- you just so happen to exist, and number two, you so just so happen to be born into a certain um, metaphysical location, right? A location in time and space, like a spot in history. Not just a, a location in history, but a time in history. And that time and that spot is is a given set of conditions, a given s- s- you know setting. And you may or may not have the ability to think your way through that setting. You might be a revolutionary. You might be a lackey, you know, and that might even be in some way like genetic, right? But at the end of the day, like the question is like, do I have roots? Like, am I just a product of my environment? Like, if I was born in India with the same mentality I have today, would I be a Hindu? Or would I be a Christian? Or would I be a Buddhist? Or, you know. Would I be an atheist, you know? It's an amazing question. And with regards to building a house, I mean, or tearing down a house and building again, or however you want to say it, like that question is huge because like even my building methods, right? Or even my will to rebuild or my will to deconstruct, like is essentially part and parcel with my personality or something that snapped me out of a personality trait that I had, you know? Like, and here I am rebuilding and my rebuilding with unwarranted surety again i hope not please no well here's the thing (laughs) i mean here's the thing this is like chesterton Chesterton wrote this thing in orthodoxy i'm reading it right now it's i'm looking at it on the page he's talking about discovering rediscovering england yeah it's one of the most profound things i've ever thought about like yeah with a true eagerness to find truth heading out into the deep and and coming back and finding yourself at the place of real comfort, when you end your journey. Like, this is like, this is the envy of, of philosophers, is that you would find something that is actually, like, uh, desired, right? Or like, you would find yourself at the place where you already have a foundation, right? And 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 like, you have to be careful that in rebuilding, you're not looking, you're not looking to you're not looking to find something in particular. You want to find truth. Right. You know, and, and it, and, and you kind of want truth to be the thing that you already had. a You always had a gut, you know, feeling of, you know, and this is all like, this is highly subjective, but in building a house, I, I, I just with a mind of that, like w- when building a house, I want to be sure that there's an earnest departure from sure, you know, like, and where it takes me, what I discover, like I, I, you know, is what I discover, you know, by God's grace, <laughs> it'll yeah. be England. You know?
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, building slow is always smart <laughs> in case adjustments need to be made. I, I don't mean slapping the thing together like a prefab or something, but just just the idea that uh, there was a point in my walk where I realized that I didn't pay for any of the materials that made the house I lived in. And I didn't even put the effort into building the thing. And that's why I didn't feel at home there. It wasn't because I didn't want God or the truth. It was because, it, it, like Dave was saying earlier, I, I didn't own it. And I had answers before the questions came. And I think um, if Moravia Project has cured me of anything, um, it would be thinking I have answers.
2: I have uh i've heard it said as a criticism of uh descartes radical rationalism that uh and i just pulled this off some i i think i think i heard it on like crash course or something like that (laughs) off of youtube um but i've heard it said that as a criticism when he tried to break down his understanding of the world rationally to like the base roots like I have a material body what's this about and he tried to build back up a worldview after tearing it down he built his worldview back up to like oh well yeah obviously the catholic church is right and like jesus is the (laughs) son of god like he like he ended up at the place he started and which was not actually possible by you know mere logic right Like, like he he introduced some leaps in there somewhere well, everyone does some, somewhere between I have a material body and Jesus Christ is the Son of God. <laughs> he, he put he stuck something in there. He just couldn't help himself, despite you know espousing that's yeah that's radical true rationalism.
0: I guess that's a gut check against the intellectual dishonesty that could still be a part of the building process, even and, though you're doing it in the name of
2: being intellectually honest. And do you ever feel all indicted by the saying like, ever asking questions and never coming to knowledge of the truth? <laughs>
0: Maybe I, I just.
1: Well, I, that's probably the problem with radical radical rationalism. Yeah, is that you don't question your questions, because questioning your questions leaves you still in defilade
2: but you know not, you know unreasonable, you know. But do you think? I mean, do you think you kind of have to settle on, on some first principles, some points? Like, in his ethics, Aristotle said this is a book about technique this is not about establishing why it is good to be a good person mm. it's about how do you practice that mm. and i kind of feel like that's
1: but isn't that a leap of faith absolutely like, yeah so so what all i'm saying is is that you are not on the pinnacle of the mountain
3: i read an article that like elon musk was in like some physics physicist classes but like he dropped out after a few days and he decided to change like directions it was interesting to me when i found that out because the article i was reading said that uh as he was being interviewed he said i dropped out because physics or whatever was not where i wanted to i was i switched over to more of like a different route in my education but um he took from the two weeks of classes um the principle of first principles where you reason up from the anatomy of a problem and not i'm sorry you reason up from the the ground of a problem not from the analogy that you want to then give the problem to take a leap forward past a problem or past into a solution and um i find that very comforting this idea of something called first principle thinking where you it's it's defined as relentlessly pursuing the foundations of the problem and not just giving analogies to, then just layer stuff on top of a problem.
0: So you're saying you're approaching you're approaching the problem with open hands instead of with some kind of angle of where you want it to take you in the end.
3: Yeah, and we've we've been dancing through like, different ver- different aspects of it when we say stuff like, "I'm rebuilding a house that I didn't invest in already," or, like, not coming from a super jaded perspective on something like. The, f- the idea of first principle is that you strip away your experience, you strip away perspective, you strip away presuppositions and concepts, and you just look at the problem for what it is, and reason up or or take the first principle to like relentlessly pursuing just the foundation of the problem. You know, and I feel like from my worldview, that's been the best thing is to actually stare at the problem, the ugliness of how beautiful humanity is.
0: I was actually reading uh, an article, which was uh, an interview with Brad Pitt today, where he said something similar to what you were just saying, and, uh, you know, that that we are afraid to face problems. We are afraid to look at them and call them what they are, and oftentimes we escape the problem at hand by jumping into someone else's life and living in, in, in some way that's just not even realistic, like we... (laughs) It's like this Oscar Wilde's quote I love, and it's uh, Wilde singular, actually. My English major wife would correct me on that, Oscar Wilde singular. Most people are other people. Their thoughts are someone else's opinions, and their lives are a mimicry. Their passions are a quotation. I think about that a lot, that like... I escape the problem by trying to live as someone else. And I think all of us do it. You know, we try to... (laughs) We try to escape the the lot we're given in life by sublimating and becoming someone else and wearing a mask of sorts. And uh, what you were saying really reminded me of that, that uh, we are afraid to bring open hands to the problem and just look at it for what it is and, and take that uncomfortable moment to stare at the problem in the face and say like, okay, how can I grow from you? instead of like let me let me give you all the reasons why you're not a problem let me minimize you let me explain you away it's like okay you are a problem and i am a a finite human trying to address you
4: and let's see where we can go from here and i find that one of the exciting parts of this podcast personally is it seems like our culture is running out of spaces where you can have uh honest intellectual discussion um Hmm. maybe, I, I can't give you all the factors why, but it just seems at least in my own circle that you don't find too many places where it's not a shouting match and even, you would say, even in academia, more and more it would seem like uh, there's more sides drawn and more just shouting than discussion uh, and that's definitely seems to be more of an issue uh, now with the millennials where we're, at least I, I, I know the sense of jumping on a movement, like being part of, you know, a movement more than interacting with someone of an, a different opinion. And uh, it's a lot easier to just kind of react on Facebook or anywhere to something than some a safe place to engage in an honest dialogue. It's because uh, yeah.
0: people are demonizing the idea of a safe space and making, making it uh, a negative thing that someone would have a place where they could open up and say what they think. Well, there's like, "Oh, you guys are a bunch of snowflakes and, you know, you need but, your little safety pin and all that garbage." Say,
1: but yeah, but there's an
2: extreme of the safe space thing, I think. Yeah. But sure. Safe, the safe space isn't so for, for it the worst case from my understanding, what I've seen and heard, my limited ignorant understanding from news clips and things that really don't mean much. The thing that people are criticizing, real or not, as I understand it, is that um, people don't want a safe space so much to discuss deferring opinions as they do to be insulated from them.
0: Mm. Yeah, I mean, I guess you could see it that way. I just just know that at least because he was just talking about social media and that's what triggered it. There are places where you will get devoured on social media for saying what you think. And there's, to me, to to demonize the idea of someone having a place where their opinion would be respected, even if it's different, is is counterproductive and it's not helpful for growth. But I, I agree. I know you I do. Th- I think
2: I, that's the opposite of what people mean by safe space. I
0: don't know. I mean... A safe place to say what you think and feel about a a situation where you won't be eviscerated. I think that's what people are trying to look for. I
3: think we want, like we would hope that a safe space would mean that there is room to have a discussion for the dialogue to be there. Uh And like even with all of us having in our frame of mind some of the things that uh, Mr. Jordan Peterson talks about when it comes to his, you know, there are the students at colleges not giving him a space to have a conversation. But I think that the true and the true thing that we learned from different universities that we were involved with is that their use of the term safe space was like, this is a space where we don't actually discuss our differences, right? You're safe to be you without having a discussion. I mean, I think we also, I think in the Christian community too, we've taken the term, into our christian worldview at time like no seriously i think in the christian circles that use that that phrase safe space to mean you can have a healthy discussion here and people won't judge you for your differing opinions yeah but having been on the universities that we've been on yeah like in the rainbow lounge there was a safe space that was a literal physical designated safe space room and it meant having no conversation about the things that make you I can
0: understand respecting where somebody is you know in their ideology and and trying not to upset them but what I'm saying is like like the things you don't say to grandpa at Thanksgiving because you don't want to have a fight at the table Mm -hmm. like that is not a safe space to actually say what you think it's a place to respect grandpa and be quiet and eat mashed potatoes and I think on social media Uh, You know, a lot of people want to say what they think, but they think grandpa will pound the table and say when I grew up, we didn't have this issue, you know, and that's happening on social media. And I have been I have been eviscerated by people that I, you know, still respect. Just my respect is, you know, um, tempered by a realistic view of how they respond to any criticism of a point being made. And, And I I. I'd like to think that the way I respond is in a way that reflects my mother's classiness. I try not to go for people's throat, especially on social media. But even then I've been like, you know, demonized and vilified. And all I'm saying is the fact that there's this huge thing about like all these snowflakes that need their safe spaces. It's not helping people actually address problems they feel are real. So like, yeah, can people can people take the idea of it? And and actually stifle discussion, I guess. But the people I know that are looking for a place to actually air out what they think uh, are not like quote snowflakes that don't want to have real discussion. They want to have real discussions. They just don't want to be eviscerated the second they say something that someone doesn't agree with.
1: Yeah, I mean it, the the air is the air is. Uh, uh, I mean, right now things are just at a pugilistic state. You know, uh, thought right now is is steeped in like in competition and uh and and people are so so unbelievably polarized right now i mean we're in a special spot in human history right now it's pretty obvious to me um so it makes it it makes it difficult because
0: so you think it's like in the air
1: yeah i think i think so i because like really both sides have their first principles and the thing that you can't get away from, and the thing that I, I, I love, the equalizer. One of the equalizers is the nature of presupposition that you can't get away from a presupposition. It can form. It can f- form a certain way where you see it a little cl- more clearly, and you recognize your own presupposition, and then maybe you can, then maybe you can like experiment a little bit where, with what it would be like to not, to not you know, use that filter. But then again, like, is that not, is that on a, like an openness presupposition where like your new presupposition is like, I'm not sure if I should have that presupposition. That's like a new one, you know? yeah. And like, and the the idea that the, the equalizer is that our epistemology, everyone is essentially in the dark apart from light, you know, everyone. and And everyone's claim to light is like, is to me is up for debate, you know, like any given religion that says they have a bead on reality, like to me, that's entirely up for debate, you know? And if something is, if something is inherently true, then it should stand on its own two feet, you know? And then within, within like public discourse, like when it comes to, you know, the sides, uh, obviously on college campuses or with politics right now, or religion online or whatnot, like to me, People are so terrified of being wrong, they're so terrified of their foundation being flipped, you know, or or pulled out from under them that they're not interested in a talk. They're really not, you know. the The far polarized, which are the all, all, always the loudest, are the most, you know, the the furthest to the poles seem to be the loudest.
2: Do you get tired of reading? Like, I go online to look at at news headlines and things like that even from supposedly respected sources i mean things like buzzfeed are the worst yeah but you see this phraseology like this person eviscerated this other person in five minutes." like really did they actually like cut into their belly and pull their entrails out yeah did they actually do <laughs> it's that heavily weighted we, words yeah why do we why do we use such bombastic language yeah because marketing because marketing. <laughs> marketing. But it's <laughs> Thank but, you, Kyle. <laughs> and I get it. Like it's like like cocaine is amazing. I'm sure it's amazing because I've been told it's amazing. Right? Like it's it will amazing. stimulate your mind. You take this stuff and you feel great. And then everything else becomes really dull. I feel like we're doing that with our news language. Like we have no sense of of level. Like <laughs> it's either okay this is a thing or like this person got eviscerated and Sally Yates is amazing and she told Ted Cruz what's what and she did but she did it in a much more classy way than the news would have you believe by reading the headline Mm. like that brings
0: a whole new a whole new shade of meaning to headlines because the cocaine connection (laughs) dude I just did a headline (laughs) holy time batman i just i just did a line of cnn (laughs) and my mind is numb
3: (laughs) yeah maybe we'll edit that out i don't know we'll see (laughs) in in marketing they found that if you just list the the benefits or just list the features of something you never sell it huh but if you sell on the principle of the story like the emotional connection to the story of how that product makes you feel or the benefit. There's this other phrase called the benefit of the benefit. Like, um, you know, Coca-Cola makes you feel happy in the summer. That's true. Is, All their is commercials are like what they are pushing, even though the opposite is true. It's sugar cane poison, right? <laughs> yeah. Or corn syrup, whatever's in it now. But like this idea of the benefit of the benefit is the reason why we have the polarization, because Coke then became when when pepsi came along coke made itself the enemy of pepsi to polarize to make money right bottom line agenda yeah. but then also like when it comes to these headlines um everyone has an agenda they're pushing and it goes it goes kind of a little bit circle to what we asked earlier about um you know if i was in india would i be a hindu because it's the other the other thing is the same if i am born in america would i be christian what have you what what have you been marketed to not just your not just environmental go down that your rabbit rabbit hole, question Kyle. is like the question <laughs> you're bringing to the table with that is environmentally but there's also inside of environments you have these polarized or battling agendas mm. yeah. That's and that to me subject. is i think the thing that hurts me the most because as we know like A lot of the stories that come out of um you know the spiritual realm of literature is that like i was born in india this poor indian and i made it to the top or i got past my status in life like that's also a another layer of the of the pie there but the marketing you know that persuasion the techniques of persuasion um I follow this one guy online. I won't mention his name yet, but later I will on another podcast. But he says he thinks the most dangerous uh, field to work in on the planet is marketing and sales. That you have the power of, of life and death in your tongue. And the guy who who says that that I've been following, he's he's nowhere near religious anywhere. He's he's you know he's a self proclaimed uh, nothing. He like says I don't identify with anything but he's a very cunning marketing yeah. guy. He charges $20,000 a day for his time. In a way, and it's it's powerful.
2: In a way, marketing is almost like the modern equivalent of rhetoric. Like the art of rhetoric was the art of persuading people not by logic but by understanding their human nature and and pushing its buttons, you know? Yeah,
3: yeah and that's where modern marketing on the internet is going back to. They realize that traditional marketing like the mad men of you know madison ave had it wrong when it came to their use of just you know the persuasion sex cells or right or like these like the features just listening features i'm i was in this one guy's course online on marketing and he was like i want you guys all to read about the word rhetoric and understand that we are persuading people interesting not changing their mind just persuading them and and then he started talking about neuro linguistic programming (laughs) and literally going deep deep into the things that really that's what the pulpits of america on all levels on all spectrums have have settled for instead of what we heard from mr peterson a few days ago like logos truth trying to figure it out questioning it they just started persuading people instead of Huh. helping people have a healthy dialectic.
0: Well, doesn't marketing appeal to someone who isn't satisfied with what they have? And I think that's that's some of the the issue right there is like within evangelical Christianity, certain things are so effectively marketed because there's such a discontentment with with the spot they're in. So like someone can almost say like this this is how you should think And you're like, well, I, I really don't like how I think now. And that thinking sounds a little sexier. So I think I'm going to shift my theology when, you know, theology is an exploration. It's not a place we arrive, you know, it's like, I mean, I know that's like the hippie phrase, but it is a journey. Theology is like the wildest adventure and exploration you could ever embark on.
2: Isn't that like an amazing con that like a certain brand of theology appeals to like oh you have a, a need in your person well obviously you're designed to be satisfied like you need something in yourself so you're going to so so come come here and listen to us and you'll be satisfied oh boy you know, but like <laughs> like if you if you look at like the <sighs> buddhist view of reality the the four noble truths the first of which is the existence of suffering like mm. the fundamental unsatisfactoriness of life it's a con because every single person is by nature unsatisfied and they'll even teach you that so you're, you're dissatisfied is is the first thing we all start there and then like oh so you have your human frailty obviously it's meant to be fixed we'll fix it just follow us <laughs> you, you think get... that's
0: part of the four noble truths no
2: no you mean the in... the Evangelical circles. The existence of suffering and dissatisfaction, as as like a fundamental underlayment of of existence, is is something that we don't naturally understand. That's not part of our cultural framework here. Right. I I'm not into like thinking that that he's just superior or whatever. Like, um, but. I, I don't think the i the idea is that we're supposed to be satisfied and yeah. and marketing and the idea of um, people are, are manipulated by the idea that they need to be satisfied when well, the truth is you'll never be satisfied by like any given thing or idea or, you <laughs> know, you might be satisfied as a, as a process, as a state. It, it, I don't think satisfaction is a state as much as a process. It's the way you walk through life, rather than what thing you have or or what idea you hold. Like,
0: that's a deep way to look at it, Andrew. I'll have to chew on that for the next seventeen years. Well,
1: sorry. like I like to I like, to like can it. You, in, can you can you hold on one sec? Can you say that again? It's a it's a state, not a process. No, no it's, the a, process, it's a process. The process not, a, not, a, not a state. It's not something you can
2: grasp. Right. It's some It's mm-hmm. it, it, right. It is intrinsic to the way you walk through life. This is Fantastic. this is
1: right, and and I think that. With regards to the process, there's a, there's a, there's a danger in saying, I'm going to adopt this ideology because I, because I like its attributes. You know, like, like some people, they choose their theology based on what they, what they want God to be like.
0: Daddy God?
1: Not necessarily that, but like, not necessarily that. I mean, any given theology, you could imagine some people based on their personality wanting it or not wanting it. Sure. Like imagine walking into Westboro Baptist and being a sociopath that wants to see the end of the world, like it would fit like a glove. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. and when the pastor said, it just so happens, God's going to burn everything up. You know, you're like, yeah, yeah, you know, and you might not even believe in Jesus, right? But you're like adopting things because, oops, because you like them and not because they're true or they pop up out of the possibilities as, as, uh, as more, uh, evidentially true than other things, right? It's not about what's true. It's about what I like. Yeah. And then you hear people say, well, if this isn't true, then that's not true and if that's not true then that's not true there's this like when when you start pulling at certain things in people's you know framework they start to panic you know it happens in politics too you know like when you talk about when you talk about the history of the country's slavery and you and you and you like you just point out the nature of like the writers of the constitution how many of them were slave owners and even though there were proponents of it and and people that were not proponents of it within that crew like you understand like wow like these people you know african-americans their their plight when it comes to the constitution they they weren't exactly their voice wasn't exactly heard in there and they weren't exactly the all men created equal at that time when you start pulling at that with people like if you if you were to say that to someone who is like a die-to-the-world you know conservative right which I in many ways I'm a conservative but when it first was proposed to me like there was a there was a bit of a domino effect and and I and I like kind of like drowning I was like no where's the surface you know like <laughs> and like no you can't you can't take that that's like the pure thing they all met in the they all met in the room and like they all had their, their <laughs> they, they all had their feathers in their They were writing with feathers, you know. Like what
3: voices? I think
1: it's Mickey Mouse on acid. That's
3: my panic voice.
1: But they all loved, you know. They all loved everybody. Mickey Mouse on acid. You know, like no, you can't take that from me. My my ideal (laughs) constitutional convention. Yeah. Where everybody was Godward, you know, upright
0: they're reading scripture
2: they
1: were reading scripture <laughs> Thomas Jefferson was you Writing know his own Bible. was not a deist etc yeah. you know you like
2: know what's what's so frustrating about that like or so confusing coming from a conservative background like we have this we have this like almost religious devotion to these people right growing up like they're part of the framework of the story we're told the people who wanted to separate from England were the godless liberals Oh, and the people who like God, church, and country were the people who didn't. Yeah, the conservatives that, were the ones that would have stuck. That is opening some <laughs> cans, Andrew.
0: But there's
1: this, so back to I mean we <laughs> should probably close. So, our Dave soup. just <laughs> Dave <laughs> just
0: steamrolled right over.
1: There. No, I, I mean that's that is that's the nature of what we're saying, yeah. and like and it and you can you can you can overlay this problem on you know, an innumerable worldviews, right? You could say, well, what about your worldview? Do you like, right? Right? And, and did you, do you have a, a will to stick around because of what you like, you know, or like, would you be interested in finding out what's true? Or are you like hanging on to something because of all of its, you know, all of its, um, um, where its roots go or whatnot. Well, it's you
0: easier know? to ask that question than to live it though. Right,
1: <laughs> right. But, but I'm just saying like within, I mean, we started this in an apologetic effort, right? And within that effort, I think we found that a lot of people, they don't like the idea of questioning their own questions. Not
0: in classical apologetics, no.
1: Right, no, but I mean like, if you're doing apologetic, even if you're doing classical apologetics, the people that you're speaking to, like you realize that, oftentimes people are just not interested in truth they're just not okay. I, I I don't mean to like put out something overarching out there because I think a lot of people are but I think that I think that we have problems I think that many people have problems choosing what is actual over what they want to be actual you know I think I, yeah
2: what you're saying like very closely parallels the Buddhist idea of like the three defilements, the things that impede people's progress are um, desire, right? I want to believe something, um, aversion, like want, not want, and ignorance are, are the three things that they identify as screwing people up. Like that's my understanding is is that's their conception of what's wrong with people yeah is the levers that pull us to make stupid decisions are once not once and our our lack of access to truth mm. right hmm. that was my thing is i i
0: i could never figure out how to rid myself of desire when i was exploring buddhism like if desire is the cause of all suffering it was like man there's a there's a level of asceticism you have to reach that I just... I don't know if I, my wiring will even allow it. Yeah. I don't know if I can disappear and be that invisible. I can try, but I feel like you might just be like the elastic that gets stretched out so
2: far he snaps hard. You know? I think I, I, I think they put their finger on something. Like, those are definitely yeah. things Yeah, oh, Definitely but i don't think the solution is to eliminate i think it's just like well this is how we are right and as long as we're alive i think that's sure probably going to be how it is
0: can you say something dave before we close about how you used to think nuances were a negative thing and we needed to eliminate them in order to find truth and you know the further the further we've got in our exploration of theology we've maybe thought nuance is actually positive
1: i think nuance is the embodiment uh, or or like Having having nuance as part of your understanding of a given inv- a given issue is the embodiment of proper epistemology. It's like it's like the it's like the shape of it, the shape of a proper epistemology, and a proper epistemology for a human being is I know real close to nothing, and I see out from a point, and I and I and I see out from a point and like a flashlight, my sight doesn't go out it receives but so it's not really like a flashlight but it's like cone shaped right it comes out from a point and it's got it's got like a what would you call what would you call the measurement of a of a uh wedge of the circle like a is that it's not a radius of an arc is it it
2: would be a cone
1: a cone okay a, so a field well, of view. the view okay so the measurement of the field of view is is to me um it's not ch- changeable past a certain extent But I think that you can you can have a super narrow view or you can broaden your view. But in broadening your view, it's not so much that you are finding truth, but you're finding possibilities like what is possible here or what things are variables here on a given issue. When I look at it with a with a strict presupposition, you know, like when I if I were to, you know, back to the constitutional thing, if I were to want to read about the constitution and i was like a you know i was like a tea party guy then like i probably if i didn't want to have a bad day i probably should stick to certain historians you know and historians that would tell it the way that you know would make me feel warm and fuzzy you know would make me wrap myself in the flag a certain way you know and oh but and i love the flag i fought i fought for this soil you know i love this country In, in in so many ways but i'm just saying like if if i were to read one one of those books that i choose because you know it's it, it's confirmation bias, right? Right. Confirmation bias gives you a close to zero uh dimension of your cone. It's real close to zero cuz you're not pointing at truth, you're just pointing at the thing you want to be true, which very possibly is true, right? It's possible that those constitutional historians were the only ones that are right, that it was all you know that it was all daisies it, i'm not saying no maybe it isn't it isn't possible it's not possible but on a given issue like if i want something to be true it's possible that that actually is true and that i even a blind squirrel finds a nut but but my cone like my out from the point i'm seeing i'm seeing a certain a certain field of view and if i broaden it as far as i can I'm saying certain things about my own understanding and I'm certain, I'm saying certain things about what I see and everything I see is included in my understanding of that issue. And that is nuance. Is that like, when I look at, you know, any problem like welfare in America, like, or the history of communism or, you know, um, a given theological concept, right there, there, why is there nuance? Because it represents, those nuances represent possibilities. And my epistemology is shaped, properly shaped, according to those nuances. Like I'm actually saying what is actually there, you know, in the history of the argument or in the facts of a case or in, you know, you know, whatever. Like my feelings about something, like my feelings about freedom and responsibility, right? Like on a given political issue. Like I have gut feelings about the about freedom and a gut feeling about responsibility with respect to, you know, you know, um, value of life, or uh, moral war, right? Like all of these things, like there's why is there nuance? There's nuance because I have mixed um, I have mixed feelings about it according to the evidence evidence that I see. And And to me, the health of it is that, I'm giving myself the best chance to see things properly. And and it's coming down, it's trickling down in the understanding of the issue along nuanced lines. Does that
0: make sense? It does, and I think there was a season where we did view a nuance as further from the truth. Like the fact that there's like a shade here, like there's a different shade than the black and white means this is we're getting further from the core of the thing
1: when you you, so you're saying like instead of something being black and white it's looking more gray because of its nuanced nature
0: because of the the complexity that comes with life and individuals who operate differently
1: and i think that that's okay like that feeling of nuance being a negative thing is okay because there are many lies out there and when something is gray because of lies then then that's like unnecessary confusion and if something can be black and white, we don't have a will to nuance.
0: No, but I I think things can be gray because of truth and not just no, lies. That's what I'm saying. Right, but
1: I'm saying like the feeling that gray is bad like is also good because there's a danger that something black and white could be drawn pulled back into gray because of lies about it. So like so sometimes things are black something sometimes things are black and white. Is it wrong to kill babies? Right? Is it wrong to kill babies? Like I believe yes, it's wrong to kill babies, right? A kid crawling around on the carpet upstairs, right? It'd be wrong to kill the baby. It's just black and white, right? If there were to be like, you know, if someone were to put nuance in that, like, I, I you know, I'm, I'm not so interested in that, and that, that's a difficulty because I don't know if you, if you take something that's maybe less emotional, right? Like a given theological concept, like. Like, say, the Trinity, right? I believe in the Trinity. Personally, I believe in the Trinity, right? But there are people out there with incredible arguments. They are Christians. They are Bible-believing. They would say they're Christians. They even talk about heresies, you know, the way that other Christians talk about heresies. They talk about Scripture You know, the inerrancy of scripture, the way some other Christians talk about it, but they don't believe in the, in the Trinity and they have clear biblical arguments of why they don't. And I disagree with them, but to me, their arguments make it a nuanced issue. And that is not a bad thing. In my mind, that's not a bad thing. It, it, and, and it becoming nuanced is essentially, is essentially me admitting my own epistemological framework that I don't know everything and actually, that it's okay that I don't know everything, right. and that if this issue goes this way or this way, what is actual is actual, and I'm not going to have a will to uh, to a non nuanced view if what's evident, if the evidence here is nuanced, you know, oh, if the issue yeah. is nuanced. I,
0: I was referencing when you were saying that when we started MP. You saw nuances in a way where you had to wipe them away. Yeah, like this is bad. There's like too many possibilities here. Let's wipe them away. And because we
1: considered them lies, though, because and 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 to this day, like it's okay to start that way, but just check them out because sometimes they're not they're not like they're not lies. Sometimes they're other views on on the fact that it's not as clear as you want it to be. We, I mean, this has been like a, a surprise buffet, because we weren't planning on doing this. No, we, we were not. Ju- we just wanted to introduce ourselves, but this is essentially what you're going to get listening to this podcast. You, we're going to go, we're going to go all over the place. And Andrew's holding his cheek, and his eyes are heavy, and that's going to happen every time too.
3: These headphones are really tight. They Those are headphones. tight. That's that's and why that's, I, that's I I that's do like the, the little, little like... non metaphor of the <laughs> evening.
1: But but we should just say <laughs> like I mean, in, literal headphones we <laughs> we should just say in closing like that we love doing this and that and that we are we're hopeful uh in in you know in this endeavor like we're hopeful that we that we as a society as this little tiny society and then as part of the society at large like we 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 want to facilitate discussions that are healthy and that um and that leave a person uh with a realistic view of their own understanding and like a hopeful view to their understanding growing, you know. And especially with Christianity, I I, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, like I, I'm interested in people's understanding growing, you know, my own understanding growing. And and I, I'm interested in understanding God better and understanding uh the way he thinks better. And um and you know I'm not speaking for the group in that, but I'm just saying, like, I'm super happy with talking this way. And like, I I would hope that someone that listens to the podcast would would not feel threatened by it. And I, I would hope that people that listen to the podcast would it would, you know, it would resonate with them that they that they are human in their epistemology, meaning like all of us are essentially uh, subject to pride at certain times. And also,
0: and we ho- could be wrong,
1: and we could all we be wrong <laughs> at any time, yeah, so like, yeah, I would just hope that people that listen would listen that way that we we don't think we know we know anything as we ought to know and and like if we question something, it's not because we believe we're the seer, it's because we recognize that we don't see we're the blind and man. we're the blind men, so I believe that God can reach through that, I
0: do,
3: I think we all. <laughs> are very hopeful that the time we're spending talking into microphones in a basement in a cave <laughs> in agile will <laughs> leave people better than when we found them.
4: Sure. That's, Hot dog. That's the bottom line. <laughs> and that's the end. Yeah. Well, let's what? In, let's interject to the fact ah. that we have enjoyed some of the questions that have come in and we do want to. That's right. Questions. Questions. Mm. Like any more that come up. I'm sure we, all have questions that come up from these discussions and we would thoroughly enjoy you sending in more on the same topic or on a topic you want us to discuss uh, that we just yeah. keep them coming.
0: Thank you for the the questions for sure that's always scary and exciting to get those on my phone please please (laughs) go
1: to the website go to uh moravia project.org and uh and comment if you if you please comment on um on this podcast or on our our attitude problems or (laughs) on you know our code of dress (laughs) or (laughs) Uh, any a given you know well, I don't think that'll be a problem until there's
0: some kind of video stream. They don't know.
1: Seriously, we we just uh, we love talking. We love the fact that it's a possibility that someone's listening, <laughs> and might enter in the conversation with us. So please come on, you know, come online and and chat with us on the website. We're not sure if we're gonna have like a, a social media forum for it. We might just keep it to the website for a while, which I know isn't exactly practical for a lot of people. But we're debating that, and also like. You know, we have a ton of uh, content right now. Like this, this recording is like after probably 25 or 30 recordings. And we haven't released any of them. We're going to release some of them after this. Um, but uh, there's a lot of little clips that will come out, uh, short clips. And then when we do podcasts, they range from, you know, 45 minutes to three hours. But yeah, thanks for listening and come back. And uh, yeah. God bless you.